This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series, Integrity Matters, Assessing the Corporate Compliance Climate in 2021, brought to you and sponsored by K2 Integrity. In this five-part exploration, I'm joined by Nazana Gabauer, who is an Executive Managing Director and Head of Investigations and Risk Advisory Practice for the Americas. She advises leaders in business, finance, and government on risk management, investigations, and compliance, and is recognized for her experience in anti-corruption and investigative matters in Latin America, Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Asia, across every business sector. And Bob Brenner, co-managing partner and chief legal officer at K2 Integrity. He has more than 25 years experience in advising government and private sector clients as a monitor, investigator, and as consultant. Bob has been appointed and currently serves as a monitor or independent consultant on behalf of federal, state, and local government agencies, as well as international regulatory bodies. Bob and his team have also designed and implemented changes to clients' compliance procedures, risk assessment procedures, and processes, training protocols, and technology to close loopholes and provide both robust monitoring of future transactions and conduct. Over this five-part series, we will assess the landscape resulting from the pandemic regarding compliance. We will consider what companies can expect from the new administration and its priorities. We will consider anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance and enforcement in 2021. We will look at global trends impacting risk and compliance in 2021. And we will conclude with preparing your company for what is next. In this episode two, I'm joined by Bob Brenner, and we explore what companies can expect under the new Biden administration. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode in our exploration of assessing corporate compliance climate in 2021. Today, I'm joined by Bob Brenner. First of all, Bob, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you today. Bob, uh, I think, interestingly, over the past four years, the regulatory environment around um, the FCPA has remained robust, where in other areas of enforcement and investigation, even, um, it's been more relaxed. Uh, With that sort of dichotomy, what do you think that means for the road of 2021 and the next four years? Yeah, look, um, Tom, you know, I'll not make any headlines by saying that um, there'll be increased regulation and increased prosecution. Um, There's no question that there will be um, in the next coming years. Um, I I think if you really looked at the FCPA um, investigations and things that came out, even some of the large uh, settlements, there was a long lead time for many of them. And they really were begun in in the prior administration with respect to many of them. Um, and so, frankly, I don't think that there was quite the dichotomy that it might appear um, uh, at first blush. I also would say, um, while I do think there'll be increased uh, prosecution um, and more intense investigation, I do think that there's been a fairly significant uh, brain drain within DOJ um, and that the pipeline uh, is not as robust as it's been in the past. So it will take some time to build that back up. You know, as a former prosecutor, I know that um, it takes time from the time that you get a tip 
um, or your time you learn certain things to build the case and then bring an action. And often, by the way, um, these cases run in cycles, and that's not just because people say we're going to focus on a particular area, whether it's insider trading or FCPA or anything else. It's very often that one case spawns other spin-offs and, and other kinds of information that allows people to build other cases. And so I think there's going to be a little bit of a lag there. The one caveat I'll have with respect to that, though, is that I have been told uh, on a few different occasions by um, people I know at DOJ, um, main justice, as well as in certain prominent offices, that there's been a bit of a slow roll with certain of the investigations that they're working on because they were concerned about uh, how Attorney General Barr or other senior officials might handle those prosecutions. So it may be there might be certain things that have been a bit uh, you know, bottled up there that might start coming forward. Bob, we had three or four of the largest settlements, both internationally and domestically, for anti-bribery, anti-corruption in the past year. And that obviously got a lot of people's attention. But one number that struck me was the number of monitorships in FCPA cases specifically, because that number was zero. And so I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the, the trend under I don't even want to say the Trump administration under the Benchkowski sort of criminal division regime and and maybe his his feelings about monitorships, the Benchkowski memo moving forward and and where we might be going with monitorships in the future. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I do think first it comes under the overall framework of, you know, the business friendly, um, you know, environment under the Trump administration and the people under him. Um, and uh, they were more receptive than to hearing argument by companies that um, it was a huge expense, both in actual dollars and diversion of, of resources and the like to handle some of these multi-year um, uh, monitorships. Um, personally, I've been a monitor for three or four different foreign banks um, that have faced sanctions or AML violations. Um, and um, what we've seen interestingly in that sector, similarly, is that in some of the very recent settlements, the language of the consent agreement has been almost exactly identical to the language that was in the settlement, which um, required a monitor a few years ago. And yet in some of those more recent settlements, including the Credit Suisse and others, um, there has not been a requirement of monitorship. And I do think there's a bit of a backlash uh, against the cost of some of the monitorships, and some of that is somewhat legitimate, and some of that is just a reflection of a different viewpoint um, from the top of the administration about the utility of it. I can tell you, you know, having served as a monitor, that what the monitors do is really provide arms and legs on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that um, the promised remediation is actually happening. So it doesn't require um, the uh, regulator or the prosecutor to wait um, and go in a year from now or two years from now to try to see what's, uh, you know, what actually was, was going on. Um, you know, you, you see it in uh, very recent times with the, the FinCEN action um, with respect to TAP1. Um, some of those allegations were from years ago. 
Um, and um, what ultimately ended up happening was the, the fact that um, the bank did not on their own remediate in the way that they were expected. Um, you know, if there had been a monitor in place in that situation, it might have been a, a different outcome. You might have seen um, an action sooner. So that uh, thank you for bringing up Cap One because uh, that was a fence-in action. We had a couple of OCC actions in the late fall uh, involving very large banks, and the enforcement actions were not around payment of bribery or corruption or uh, facilitation of bribery and corruption or receipt of funds in in bribery and corruption actions, but they were for those organizations not having an effective compliance program. And these were not DOJ cases, but put that together coupled with the June release of the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. It seems to me that the DOJ is moving towards mandating effectiveness of your compliance program, not simply having a best practices compliance program. And if that's correct, could we see the DOJ move towards enforcement actions around effectiveness? I think that's a a very good likelihood. And I actually think it's probably a pretty good development. Um, You know, for years, the major financial institutions that have been regulated by the Federal Reserve or by the New York State Department of Financial Services have had to regularly consider and upgrade the effectiveness of their compliance programs because they were facing enforcement, uh, you know, investigations every year, there would be an examination. As a regulated uh, entity, they had to face bank examiners every year that would test the effectiveness of the programs. Um, uh, in corporate America, generally, you didn't have to do that until you ran into trouble. Um, if you ran into trouble, of course, and you didn't have an effective program, um, the likely penalty could be more severe. But um, there wasn't as great scrutiny on a regular basis or penalty um, without something more, without evidence of the bribery and the like, um, for not having as effective a program. So I do think it's a positive development. I also think it is to something that's going to continue. However, you know, again, if I'm um, chief compliance officer, general counsel, you know, I might start getting a bit nervous about understanding the parameters of my exposure with respect to that, and also really understanding exactly what best practice is with respect to my particular institution and what I really need to do to make it effective. Um, I've been in this field since 2007, uh, in-house, and then uh, as a general counsel and then uh, as a consultant in the compliance space. And one of my observations has been that it's not simply that compliance programs have evolved. It's the Department of Justice has evolved. In 2007, uh, they were happy to see a written paper program with policies and procedures, and we're far beyond that. But it strikes me that in the fight against bribery and corruption, in addition to everybody having a, a role, the department has evolved in its thinking as well and has in many ways led the expectations for corporations. Would would you find that to be a fair assessment? I think that is. Um, it, it's interesting. They don't have the, um, it, you know, upfront and as a proactive matter, they don't have the same tools that uh, some of the financial regulators have to enforce that. Um, but uh, I think by the enforcement actions they take 
when they build some of these cases and combine you know actual wrongdoing including bribery uh, uh, and, and other misconduct um, with the fact they don't have an effective program um, I do think that that's a trend that's going to continue and I do think it's an effective one because what they otherwise found was that um, the sort of best practice really was pretty minimal and it wasn't really a practice that was effectively um, preventing the activity that it was intended to prevent. Um, it was just there to sort of inoculate if you could. And I guess in a way what DOJ is saying is that you're going to have to have um, a stronger injection in order to inoculate the company um, against an action where you haven't really been effective all along. Bob, earlier in this uh, episode, you talked about uh, the pipeline and how cases come in, they get worked up. Uh, it's uh, not a very fast process. It's very deliberative by design, I think. And then, of course, you have issues around international uh, documents and investigations and sharing of information. But I was wondering if you might conclude with some thoughts about really how the, the DOJ works up these cases and how someone like uh, yourself would would help guide a company, not simply in dealing with the DOJ, but also the ongoing remediation? Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, you know, uh, when you do get information, you're, you know, you need to investigate it um, completely. Um, and, you know, from, if it's a U.S. corporation, you can't rely on the information coming just out of your local um, heads of offices in the various far-flung lo locations you might operate in. Um, and um, you need to develop that evidence and make a good valuation about what it means um, and then, you know, generally confer with outside counsel about the advantages of uh, self-reporting. Um, you know, again, it's very complicated these days with the um, various data privacy rules as well. Um, but certainly one of the trends that are coming out also is going to be enhanced uh, capability for DOJ and other regulators to subpoena uh, documents for, for U.S. companies that are actually held by subsidiaries overseas. Um, and that's going to make a big difference for DOJ uh, enforcement actions. Well, Bob, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've discussed in this podcast. Where could they go? Best place to go would be our website, actually, which is uh, k2integrity.com. Well, Bob, uh, I hope our listeners will join us for our episode three, where we take a look at anti-bribery and anti-corruption in 2021. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode in our five-part podcast series on Integrity Matters. Assessing the Corporate Compliance Climate in 2021, sponsored by K2 Integrity. For more information, you can check out the K2 Integrity website at www.k2integrity.com. I hope you'll join us again for another episode as we continue to explore any of the issues that corporate compliance professionals, practitioners, and corporate compliance functions will face in 2021 and beyond. This podcast series has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.